0: So I saved until the last evening of our retreat a talk on the uh, most important of all possible spiritual topics. (laughs) So perhaps I should have given the talk earlier. But I thought I would uh, I thought I would do it tonight on this really what I think is the most important possible topic we can explore, which is how to bring our practice to all the parts of our lives. How to make it real in daily life. How to bring practice to our individual, relational, and collective lives. a great Tibetan yogi named Shabkar who lived in the, mostly in the end of the 18th century, beginning of the 19th century. He said, let your life and practice be one. And so as Amana was saying, we're in a way perched about to fly, we might say, about to return into what we call the world, (laughs) right? And our everyday lives after a period of intensive training. I think it's important to remember that all trainings, in a sense, even though we want to very much be present and be in the moment, there's also a sense in which trainings are means to an end. You know, and I think the end is our whole lives, which includes being here. So there are these cycles, of, as Heather talked uh, so much about the various cycles, really giving this quite extensive map. And there are the cycles of moving more inward, moving inside and also uh, coming back out, bringing our practice out into our lives and the world. And sometimes our cycles really call us to do more inner work. And sometimes they call us to do more outer work. I know that's been very true of my own experience. You know, I was first probably as a teenager and college and so forth, I was more of an activist, you know? And uh, when I found the practice in my kind of early 20s, I was very drawn to the practice. And some of my activist friends thought I was really like losing it, (laughs) you know, or um, in some ways betraying what we had been interested in. I, for me, I always kept a vision of, of both the inner and the outer. But there are these cycles. And I know for myself, there were cycles of being more inward for periods of time. And then, you know, at a certain point, it was a time for bringing them together. And there are these individual cycles that we each have. And of course, uh, I think as Pawan said, um, it's not like we uh, left the world. The world followed us in, so to speak. I remember I go every year to the Abbey of Gethsemane which in Kentucky, which is a Trappist monastery. And I I lived in Kentucky for four years and would go out there about every six or eight weeks and do retreats and got to meet uh, monks and also um, sisters from nearby convent called the Sisters of Loretto. And they're a bunch of activists and the monks sort of stay at home. (laughs) It's interesting. And, but we were, we would all meet together in in, uh, actually a group called the Thomas Merton group, which I did for many years, very, very beautiful. And I remember reading the uh, manual for novices at the monastery and said uh, something like this, don't think you have left the world behind. <laughs> the world has followed you in. Right? And so we've all had to work with whatever that means for each of us. And of course, the long-term intention is to have this integration of the inner and the outer to bring them together. And so as we move into uh, more complexity and more speed, it's challenging, right? The complexity of speaking and some of us will be at airports and, you know, anyone who leaves Spirit Rock, as we've said, goes into 55 mile an hour traffic, right? I know at least some people I talked to were doing test runs today. (laughs) You know, to, to try it out. And so what holds us in the transition? You know, it's like, I think what Poan was talking about, this sense of the gold, you know, what really holds us in the transition? And, you know, in a time when there may be some changes, um, even some disorientation or confusion, what holds us? And, you know, I, I think one of my suggestions that I found really useful for transitions is, is a little bit what, uh, you know, I said in the speech session that Arena and I did, which is that to really keep grounding, keep connecting with the body and the ground and using some of the techniques that Heather gave, and then also staying in the heart. And I think especially also, maybe a third suggestion, watch out for the shooting of the second arrow something difficult happens watch for the forming of narratives watch for the forming of negative narratives and see if you can notice them and not not follow them if something doesn't go like you want can we can we notice that and just keep coming back so i want to give some pointers for this uh, return to our daily lives, to life outside of our retreat. And I want to do that in three ways. First to talk about how we're on a kind of journey, we're on a kind of archetypal journey, call it a spiritual journey first. And then kind of the bulk of the talk will be uh, a number of pointers for daily life practice some of them more well-known, and some of them I'm going to talk about a little more advanced pointers, (laughs) sort of gathered from over the years, from my own experience and many people. And then thirdly, I want to explore one way of connecting the inner work with responding to the needs of the world, really to continue the stream that Irina uh, brought up very, very strongly and Oren continued. And I want that, so I'm going to close with that. So we have been on a kind of journey, either one month or two months. I found uh, a line in a poem by a Chinese Taoist master named uh, Tu Long who said, one who travels on a journey does so in order to open one's ears and eyes and relax one's soul to open one's eyes and ears and to relax one's soul. That's the long-term journey that we're we're on. And I also thought of the uh, poem by Mary Oliver. That's one of my favorites. Some of you probably know her poem, The Journey. And uh, some really beautiful lines towards the end of the poem. It's really, uh, I, I really see the poem as very uh, helpful guidance for our own retreat and returning. And it's especially framed, some of you know the poem, in terms of how we um, uh, recognize some of the old and unhelpful voices. It's a major part of our practice here, right? Noticing old and unhelpful voices. And again, I, I like to I always think when I say something like that, that the Spirit Rock promotional lit- uh, literature could be a little bit different. you know it probably says, "Come, develop mindfulness, you know, develop equanimity, stability of mind, concentration, but it could also say, "Come and study more than you ever wanted to your old and unhelpful states of mind <laughs> and your habits, right? More than you ever could have thought was possible. <laughs> so so Mary Oliver in the poem talks about noticing the old voices and then having a new voice develop. And so I really believe that, again, Poan was talking to the gold. It's really having this new voice of our own, our own being. She says, but, but little by little, as you left their voices, the old voices behind, the stars began to burn through the sheets of clouds, and there was a new voice, which you slowly recognized as your own, that c- can now keep you company as you go deeper and deeper into the world. So we've all found this, these new voices, the voice maybe of faith or confidence or clarity of view, clarity of understanding. And so it's helpful, again, Again, I appreciated Pawan's comments a lot and, and, and Amana's um, preceding that, but that emphasis on what, what have we, what's the gold, what have we found, what's beautiful in what we found so far. And I think it's helpful to reflect on that. And And also, you know, one practice which I like to suggest at the end of retreats is to Uh, take some time if you haven't already done so, maybe later tonight or tomorrow morning before your mind is too focused on the practicalities and ask yourself, uh, what are my intentions for the next period of time? Even for the next week, what have I learned and how does this impact my life and directions and decisions? What's there for me? to give some time to really work with intention while we're still in the space. Very much suggested if you haven't done that. And it can take different forms. Some might do some writing, some some working with uh, visualization or something. To tune into that inner guidance, the inner wisdom. Some of you know that uh, I have a bench or there's a bench down in the pasture that originally was uh, brought there after my father's death. And um, for a lot of years, he died about about 13 years ago, a little more than that. And um, I go down there twice a day. Some of you have seen me sitting on the bench <laughs> there. And I go down there and I kind of uh, talk to them. You know, and... I get like daily guidance, something comes through that's not fully explainable in terms of my mind, some kind of uh, communion It's some, some, some way. And so some way that we can tune into that deeper guidance, have some pausing, you know, finding ways to do that, I think is very important. Following, following your own voice, like in the poem, really trusting your own vision more and more, your own, your own wisdom. It's really, in a way, being yourself. I remember this morning there was a T-shirt that one of you was wearing which said, be beautiful, be yourself. Anyone see that? It was very okay. nice. I could see it. And it reminded me of the, there's a line from Thich Han where he says, why speak of the need to love one another? Just be yourself. <laughs> you don't have to become anything else. Interesting, isn't it? To, you know to be fully who one is, and of course there's it means in a, a deeper way. So a few a few suggestions uh, for um, bringing the practice home. And I know for myself, maybe like many of you, Especially the last maybe five years, I've really had uh, a deepening passion. I think it's been there for a long time to have my daily life practice approximate what retreats are like. I know many of us have that intention. It's really been—it's one of my passions. I think. I think I have three pa- three core passions that really guide my teaching and my life. That's one of them—to really have daily life in this culture with a you know the, all the stuff, the technology, the um, the busyness. How to how to have our practice be alive, and how to have there be not so much a gap between retreat and daily life. Not easy, right? And and another passion has been the de- going to the depths of practice. I would say a third passion has been developing helping to develop a really broad vision uh, of practice that goes all the way from the individual to the collective and finding ways to do that. And my own expression of that has been primarily in developing uh, training programs for people connecting inner work and social service and social action over the years. And yet, Uh, bringing our practice into daily life is not at all easy. I remember a cartoon showing a spiritual seeker at a crossroads and one sign pointed to the left towards enlightenment and the other sign pointed to the right, daily life. (laughs) Right? And it can kind of seem separate or or going different ways, like that, like that, like that poem or that, like that, like that sign. So I'm going to talk about three levels of daily life practice, one more foundational, one more intermediate, and then some more advanced ways. And there's a little bit of arbitrariness in in those three categories. But I'm going to give, again, kind of a collection of tips, a lot of them will be familiar, especially the foundational ones, but maybe I'll say a little bit more about them. So of course, the starting point that we often give is having a daily practice. And many or most of us have that. Uh, One suggestion, if you haven't had a really regular daily practice, we can of course use the retreat, the momentum of the retreat to do that Uh, But one suggestion. Do not make an intention to have a daily practice for the future. Indefinitely. Don't do it. Let me explain. (laughs) (laughs) What is actually can work better is if you have a very strong intention to establish your daily practice for the next week. And you do it every day or maybe for some of us it's to up the level of practice, maybe have a second sitting, something like that. And uh, so the suggestion is really make a strong commitment to a change, but for the next week. And as the phrase goes, come hell or high water, do that. And a groove gets established. And it's sort of like a, a way to develop a new habit or a new practice is to have a very uh, realistic goal, not to take on too much. So that's a suggestion that I found helpful. Um, you know, a second, a second really foundational support for our practice is having a sense of the basic framework of practice. And many of us have that, but have some sense It might be, through one of the teachings, the Four Noble Truths, or the Seven Factors of Awakening. Or it might be really looking for dukkha and the end of dukkha. You know, and that can be a really important guide. And I think there's also this for me, and I think for many or most of us on the team and many of you, a uh, kind of a contemporary vision of practice, which I find really compelling. I I know many of us do, which is to, have our practice be there in all the parts of our lives. And so that means in our individual formal practice and ways of developing mindfulness and concentration, opening the heart, developing insight in various ways, especially what we've pursued on the retreat, a very fundamental area of practice. But then there's also uh, how do we work with our our wounds, are sometimes we can call it our psychological material. All of us have uh, what Heather called uh, limiting beliefs or core beliefs. All of us have something like that from our childhood, sometimes later, that surface often on retreats and and we can work with, uh, sometimes uh, about ourselves, I'm not okay, I'm, uh, you know, I'm weird. I won't ask for a show of hands on that one, (laughs) right? Uh, But we can have that and it can uh, sometimes catch us, right? It can catch us or my needs won't be met or I'm not safe. And these were often developing in relationship to real issues, right? But at a certain point, uh, the conditions change, but we often carry forth those limiting beliefs. And so way how to work with that, we can do that work both in retreat and outside of retreats, but can be very fundamental to address, to touch that base. And then there's also the um, addressing of the social conditioning. So sometimes I think that there are three kind of broad areas of ignorance that we have. One you know, more identified in the Buddhist tradition, the ignorance of not seeing impermanence or the nature of dukkha or the nature of the self. But there's also a second, which we could say is more psychological, and a third related to social conditioning. You know, and so again, following a lot of what Arena presented and Oren followed with, and what's come up at other times, you know, to how to work with uh, exploring the conditioning around you now that comes more from the society and again all of these are interrelated right often our limiting beliefs are very much structured by the by the social conditioning but to finding ways to explore the conditioning around race or gender or age or sexual orientation or another 15 of them if not if not more you know, how to do that, you know, and not always easy. My sense is that maybe in 10 years, we'll have a more developed way of integrating those, those elements into retreats, right? Right now, what's very useful in social conditioning that, uh, you, know, it, you know, one of the forms is finding groups of people with similar location and conditioning who can explore with, you know, relative, um, what? Uh, relative support uh, can explore, you know? And so that's been important for me, particularly in being with a number of groups, especially looking into race, conditioning, whiteness, in in groups, um, doing readings, sharing our own conditioning. Some one, one group was with teachers sharing how these issues come up in teaching, how we work with them, you know? very crucial, finding ways to have that kind of practice. So I hope that for many of you that vision of a kind of a really contemporary broad sense of practice is inspiring. I think it is very much for me. And it's also something that we're all co-creating. We don't know exactly how to do all of this. You know, we have some sense, but it's really being co-created at the current time. A third support in addition to Our formal practice and the um, uh, sense of the vision, the framework is taking refuge and working with the precepts. And it can be a very powerful practice. I know that uh, many groups would have some renewal of the precepts and working with the refuges every two weeks. You know, I coached, I co-taught, have co-taught for a lot of years the Wednesday morning gathering here at Spirit Rock with Sylvia Borstein. And we have had, uh, for a long time, we had a monthly renewal of the ethical precepts. And that's very common, something like that, you know, to do that. And we'll also, we'll also work with the precepts tomorrow morning again. So you may find yourself really wanting to work with the refuges and precepts in that way. I was very inspired by several of you who took as a retreat practice the practice of doing no harm. It's a very profound practice. And of course we we often do harm, you know, and can we take that as an ongoing practice? Tremendous to unify really the different parts of our lives. You know, because when you look at it deeply and follow it, you know, it it can be a practice which can unify, you know, a month, two months, six months of our practice. Looking at when we harm ourselves with our own language and working with that when we harm others in interpersonal relationships, which is inevitable. You know, when we cause harm because we c- can hardly do otherwise. Everyone who gets into a vehicle with an internal combustion engine is causing harm, is contributing to harm. You know, that's sobering, isn't it? If you, t- if you take the ethical precepts, you know, I, one of the things I found is that really taking the ethical precepts is one of the most powerful ways to motivate activism know, as with the example I just gave, if we really take that seriously, how do we, how, do, how could we not want to minimize harm, find ways to stop harm, be aware, not just on the interpersonal level or on the individual level, but also the social level, you know, where do our tax money, where does our tax money go? So it's not easy, right? It's like a great Zen koan. How do we how do we work with this? So it can be very very powerful. A fourth support, again something well known, but it's to really find your home with uh, a community. You know, whether it's local or whether it's um, um, online, perhaps. You know, the the new technologies bring. Um, benefits and problems right (laughs) but one of the benefits is we can link up in different ways you know I know some people who exchange emails or text every day expressing gratitude to each other (laughs) right you can do use use the technology in very interesting ways you know and be creative or you know maybe find someone if you haven't already at the retreat here with whom you want to communicate in the next week supporting each other with your practice. Right? Ask someone, will you be my will you be my buddy for the next week or two? Not not right now, but li- <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so we can do that. You know, I've been interested in support following retreats for a long time and I have a sheet out there some of you saw I I I'm offering a follow-up group in the Bay Area for anyone who's interested which will occur a week from tomorrow in Berkeley near public transportation Bart (laughs) for those of you not in the Bay Area that's the Bay Area rapid transit okay yeah so uh, and I'm going to do another one a week later Oren started a you know, very powerful program really with this motivation in mind called Next Step Dharma. And those of you particularly not in the Bay Area who wanna really stay connected and follow up the retreat can use that service, very helpful. So a fifth support through sort of foundational support is taking regular retreats. That re- the coming back to retreats can be very helpful. You know, it's like I sometimes suggest as a practice, knowing when your next retreat is. Because what it, what is it? It's really in part a statement of priorities. I think I rest a little more easily knowing when my next retreat is. And it said this is important. I value this. So more intermediate level practices, again, a little bit arbitrary in the distinctions. And so we may ha- start to have a more differentiated set of practices. We may do our mindfulness, we may bring in the heart practice as well. We may work with, um, uh, we may work with uh, the psychological work or the ways of attending to our, our wounds, our, our challenges may have a sense, again, of this, these multiple dimensions of practice. We also start more and more to bring our practice into our work, our relationships. We try to find ways of uh, making those connections. That might be an edge for a lot of us. How can I do that? You know, in the speech practice that Oren uh, really um, outlined yesterday, and even more, there, there. As you've noticed, there's a there's a book out there, which gives a is a very good practice guide. You know, the speech practice is so crucial. I'll come back to that. So, how to bring, how to bring our practice into our work, our relationships, and so forth. You know, taking practices like washing the dishes or answering emails, taking a small task. For many of us. We may also be really drawn to clarify, what are my priorities? Often a retreat can do that. How am I living my life? Where am I spending my time? Am I doing so the way that I want to? Is my work in relationship to my deeper values and aspirations? What might I let go of? How to simplify? This is from the poet Hafez, Persian poet. We have not come here to take prisoners, but to surrender ever more deeply to freedom and joy. We have not come into this exquisite world to hold herself hostage from love. Run, my dear, from anything that may not strengthen your precious budding wings. Run like hell, my dear, from anyone likely to pull a sharp knife into the sacred tender vision of your beautiful heart. So how do we follow that tender, beautiful heart? One of the ways, another further support is working actively with intentions. We can work with intentions as we've done here with our practice in the mornings, what's my intention? We can also bring intentions into activities. I'm at a difficult meeting, what's my intention? You know, we can work if you're, ha- if you're in a group, you can have the group can have intentions and work more actively with intentions. How do we do that, right? Um, bringing the intentions. I, I have a practice of four times a day coming back to a core vow, which is takes about two or three minutes. It was developed actually, especially, the core of it was from a birthday card that a dear friend of mine sent, <laughs> wishing me well and saying, may this happen, may this happen. And I said, oh, that's good to remember every day, <laughs> right? And uh, and I've embellished it and expanded it, but it's, it kind of brings me back to what's most important. And I do that four times a day, before breakfast, morning, afternoon, and evening. And if I'm ever like in the middle of the night, something's really distressing, when I, when I go back to those intentions, something settles, at least some. And so intentions like working with that can be very, very helpful. A big practice is to take difficulties as the invitation to practice. We're getting a little more advanced here, right? (laughs) Difficulties, conflicts, challenges as the starting point for practice rather than what? Oh, woe is me, or getting caught in an old pattern, or second arrow shooting. There's an old Tibetan saying, when the sun shines and my belly is full, I look like a Dharma practitioner. But it is when faced with trouble that my faults are exposed. (laughs) Mm. (laughs) Right? Another Tibetan saying, which I like a lot, turn all obstacles into the path of practice. Not easy, right? But when we can actually say, oh, a difficulty has arisen, time for practice. And again, I think we wanna come back to the distinction we've sometimes made and know the level of difficulty. You know, again, maybe if we use that scale of one to 10, know when it's workable and know when it's too much and overwhelming, right? And it's in the workable range that we're talking about. When it's in the workable range and there's a difficulty, take it as practice. Can I take that as practice? And when we actually have some interest, more and more interest in where we get stuck or where we get reactive and take it as practice, our practice accelerates. It's really a powerful way to practice, not easy, you know, but that that can be another way of deepening. From the Buddha, there's a famous story of uh, Vedahika and Kali uh, and I won't tell a story. It's a pretty interesting story. It's Majjama Nikaya 21. And um, the, uh, after the story is told, the Buddha steps in and gives the teaching, which is this. Some practitioner is extremely kind, extremely gentle, extremely peaceful, so long as disagreeable courses of speech do not touch that person. But it is when disagreeable courses of speech touch that person then it can be understood whether that practitioner is really kind, gentle, and peaceful. So taking difficulties as practice. I've often taken as a practice, I should, do, I should catch up with this, because not so much recently, but I've often taken as a practice when there's a difference of views with another person, can I take that as an invitation or a starting point for inquiry rather than war? Working with differences of views very can be a very powerful practice. Can I take that as a starting point for inquiry and empathy rather than conflict and war? And just a few other practices, which I think that's kind of advanced, but these are what I have under my more advanced listing. Okay? One of them, is working with the speech practice and really taking that on. Many of us, anyone complain about only having half an hour a, to- a day for meditation? Anyone complain about that sometimes? If you take speech practice as practice, we may have eight or 10 hours a day of serious spiritual practice. Okay. And then it's possible. It's challenging one one of the questions which I received which I, I, I was asked to respond to you know we you know I said uh, in the session a, a guideline kind of a simplification of speech practice is to keep ground and stay in the body and stay in the heart but how do you stay in the body when you're speaking and it's a training you know it's a training it can take some time and one of the fundamental areas of training for many of us is to ground further in the body. I know I, I did primarily grounding in the body practices for four years in various, various kinds of practices. And it helped to sort of burn consciousness of my whole body or burn awareness of my whole body kind of into consciousness. Not always, I'm not always there, but it's like way more accessible. And it makes possible having awareness in the act of speaking that makes possible that uh, sense of being 50% inward, 50% outward that I think, I think, Irina, you mentioned that, didn't you, in the, in the talk, right? Yeah. That that's really a possibility. But more advanced and, and grounding the practice in the body can really help. We could also work with the three ways of seeing that liberate in daily life work with impermanence, with noticing dukkha, noticing not-self. One of the really interesting ways to do that is to really track for dukkha. or reacti- I like to translate dukkha as reactivity. Track for reactivity during the day. Set that as intention. It's a great practice. If you, if you have that intention, you might really notice when it comes up. It's pretty noticeable, right? And having that intention, they say, let me practice with reactivity, during the day, it's a beautiful and, and deep uh, daily life practice. We can also do the same with anatta. Maybe let me, let me look out for any manifestation of my thick self, which is typically correlated with reactivity. <laughs> right? So we can, we can work with that. Another practice, which uh, Oren mentioned, was, is to uh, take a Sabbath day. Take either you know, part of a day or a whole day once a week ancient practice in so many cultures. You know, and it's, it's been a core practice for me for about 35 years. And it makes a huge difference, you know, to, in a sense, go in a, in, in a mini way into something like retreat once a week. You know, and a lot of people I work with, they do it three hours. You know, but it's like a key, like the Shabbat, is that it's on the, on the same day. It can make a huge difference to keep coming back once a week. Oh, now is my time of nourishment for my own being, for my own practice to work with a Shabbat like that. Then last thing I'll mention is that's been really interesting to me is finding, you know, initially maybe one or two sort of micro practice sessions during the day can you find a few times or initially one or two times during the day where you can have a sense of practice for five minutes or ten minutes? It could be maybe you drive to work and you have a five-minute walk uh, walk to where you work. Take that as practice. You know, I I do some knee exercises uh, every morning. Take about ten minutes. I sit and it's practice time. And when you do it regularly, it becomes a habit, you know, and it could be, I don't know, taking a walk after one meal a day for 10 minutes. Do something I find especially helpful if you can find five or 10 minutes that do not, does not add time to your schedule, not another thing on the to-do list. Can you? And if you can find things like that, it'll, it'll um, deepen the practice because we need reminders during the day, right? We need a lot of reminders and having, if you can have one or two or three reminders, five or 10 minutes, it'll make a difference. Could be washing the dishes. Every, you know, when I wash the dishes, it's practice time. Something like that. So last area, I want to talk about an archetype for connecting the inner and the outer. And again, knowing that for each of us, we may have cycles in which we're more inner, cycles in which we're more outer, cycles in which we're looking for integration. And we also have different vocations. You know, we we may, we're each drawn in certain ways. And I like very much a model that I learned from Joanna Macy, who I'm really honored to think to name as a mentor, friend, and colleague. And Joanna has a beautiful model for what she calls the Great Turning, which she understands as the movement to a sustainable society. And there are three aspects of the Great Turning and each of us I'm, I'm saying this in part because each of us may be called more to one one of the three than to others okay so the first is what she calls holding actions to prevent further damage and this is the traditional area of activism you know addressing what's negative what's causing harm very crucial trying to trying to stop what's harmful, maybe um, develop new policies, whatever. A second dimension is understanding and transforming the core institutions. That could mean all sorts of things. Could mean medicine, education, agriculture, transportation. We might be driven to really um, help the world in those ways. And the third area is uh, shifting consciousness, right? And that can be done in a lot of ways. But the point is that what I have found helpful when I, I've done do retreats with activists, they hear that and something settles because the point is, understand how all three are interconnected and see where you're called, see what calls you. And I may be called to be a yoga teacher but if I can teach yoga with an inner, with an understanding of the interconnection of the three, you know, maybe okay, here's how our understanding is our bodies were formed, you know, by gender conditioning, by the culture, and and in a, in a way, I'm integrating the other two into how I work with consciousness, right? So, see where we're, which where are we drawn to? Which of those three? And maybe we do a little bit of two of them and a lot in one of them, right? Very crucial. And understanding the interconnection is really crucial. The world right now deeply needs people who have a strong inner practice and can bring it out into the world. It's a tremendous need of our times. And you all um, are those people, if I can say it that way. This is all of us in our own ways. How do we have that strong inner practice and bring the inner practice into, again, where we're drawn. And for some of us, it's to bring it into these large systemic issues, climate, race, sexism, the other isms, economic inequality, the decline of democracy, whatever, wherever we go. But we, I would say that uh, those needed to address the current times, need to have all the qualities we've developed here. Mindfulness, compassion, equanimity. I was very inspired spending time in Thailand and meeting people who had that, that connection of deep inner practice and outer engagement. It was really inspiring. I remember one monk named Prabhupada who was abbot of a monastery for six months a year, a lot of deep practice, six months a year doing environmental work. Very inspiring for me to combine the two. I met met a number of people like that. There's a wonderful archetype in the Buddhist tradition for bringing the inner and the outer together. That's the bodhisattva. You know, literally the awakening being. And there's a, there are traditional understandings of the bodhisattva. And I think there's also something like a contemporary understanding emerging, a little bit different from the traditional of a being, like I said, who has a deep inner practice, but is is also committed to addressing the deep needs of the world. It's to me and many others, and I'm sure many of you, a very inspiring uh, archetype. The vow of the Bodhisattva in the Zen tradition. Living beings are infinite, I vow to free them. Delusions are inexhaustible, I vow to cut through them. Dharma gates are boundless, I vow to enter them. The Buddha way is unsurpassable. I vow to realize it." Mm. And bodhisattvas say something like that every day, right? That guides them. And they train, you know, they train in the, uh, the paramis in Theravada tradition, the paramitas in Mahayana, they train in generosity and virtue, wisdom, energy, patience, truthful speech and so forth, equanimity, loving-kindness, and so forth. And they train in being able to manifest uh, in the world. I mentioned that I worked with uh, training programs for people combining inner work and outer service and action, and did that for about 15 years. And one of the conclusions that I came to is that the core principles for inner work are the same as for our spiritual practice in our relationships and in the larger world and the collectivity. Really similar to what Irina was saying when she was saying that the core is love and caring, right, very much. But that was a dramatic conclusion that the core principles are the same. You know, and I, I, I later wrote a book, really practice manual coming out of those 15 years. And, you know, the book is structured by talking about the ethical guidelines and um, developing mindfulness and working with intention, opening to suffering and so forth developing equanimity. And I found that those core principles had meanings, individually, relationally, and collectively. One could understand them and that the principles are the same wherever you go. That was a finding, I wasn't, that was really a powerful, powerful finding. I'll just mention a few other things that in our times, It's hard to be a bodhisattva and stay balanced. It's hard, you know, and it's come up in in a few of the conversations, especially recently, how do I work with all the information? You know, I did, I've done some retreats where I was practicing like 12 hours a day and on the computer like three or four hours a day. Interesting retreats, (laughs) right? And I found... I found that uh, there's just this, almost like this, wanting more information. And that I was actually, half an hour a day was a lot inadequate. And I was going, when I would notice my mind, I was just going there, oh, maybe something new. So anyone who's in this for the long haul, watch your consumption of information. Really crucial. Be careful. Maybe half an hour is enough. Watch that mind that wants more more news. You know, stay in community, stay connected. Joanna Macy talks about rough weather networks needed for hard times. Be connected. Very crucial. Watch out for getting caught in negative scenarios. Use your practice in that way. I'll just close with... Uh, one or two readings and then a story. This is from Vandana Shiva, uh, Indian environmental activist and writer. Probably some of you have, have heard her. This was from an interview. The interviewer asked, every time I've heard you speak or meet you, you've had so much energy, not only intellectual energy, but personal or spiritual energy. I'm just wondering what keeps you so alive. Well, it's always a mystery. (laughs) But she goes on. (laughs) Because you don't know why you get depleted or recharged. But this much I know, I do not allow myself to be overcome by hopelessness, no matter how tough the situation. I believe that if you just do your little bit without thinking of the bigness of what you stand against, if you turn to the enlargement of your own capacities, just that in itself creates new potential. And I've learned from the Bhagavad Gita and other teachings of our culture to detach myself from the results of what I do because those are not in my hands. The context is not in your control, but your commitment is yours to make and you can make the deepest commitment with a total detachment about where it will take you. You want it to lead to a better world and you shape your actions and take full responsibility for them, but then you have detachment. And that combination of deep passion and deep detachment allows me always to take on the next challenge because I don't cripple myself. I don't tie myself in knots. I function like a free being. I think getting that freedom is a social duty because I think we owe it to each other not to burden each other with prescriptions and demands. I think what we owe each other is a celebration of life and to replace fear and hopelessness with fearlessness and joy. <laughs> Whoa. Yeah. Yeah. I want to finish with a story. This is a story from uh, one of my students about a very, what, um, very everyday way of connecting the inner and the outer. We started weekly visits to the detention center this past July, shortly after learning that it houses immigrant children aged 12 to 17 detained At the U.S. border. The children are certainly traumatized. They have traversed huge distances, often alone, fleeing violence, war, drugs, mainly in countries south of us. Many are orphans. Kids could be there because they are dangerous to themselves or others or things like gang tats or the color of a t-shirt when they were apprehended and would have suggested gang affiliation. Some probably just freaked out when they were captured because they didn't know what was happening. At the center, the staff members are undertrained, and it is rumored that many are demoralized. Those with the most open and tender hearts tend to develop a shell to shield themselves from secondary trauma. Most staff members don't speak Spanish, which is spoken exclusively by most of the children. Allegations of mistreatment have come to light and some charges substantiated. When we have visited the center, we have occupied public land near the entrance and where the local police told us we were permitted to be. The children have no access to windows so they cannot know that we're there. Using Google Earth, we can see that there is a central courtyard and when the weather is nice and the wind is blowing the right way, we have sometimes heard them playing. I started going there initially because I felt I just had to see the place, this symbol of what appeared to be a gratuitous cruelty and which had been the subject of such disturbing press coverage. We were very clear in our intentions about our visits there. I had seen the way righteous anger during protests had increased polarization and, in my opinion, made things worse. To bring people together with a common understanding of what our presence would entail, I wrote a code of conduct inspired by the Nashville lunch counter sit-ins of 1960, and anyone who wished to join us was asked to sign it. Our visits had a regular structure. we began each visit by stating intentions, one person reading them. And then we had a 30 minute period of, of meditation. One of us would offer some guidance if re- requested. A book of poetry written by kids who were detained was recently published. So we then would read one or two of the poems. Sometimes we did qigong together. We then had a second 30 minute period of meditation. We ended with a brief closing, dedication of merit, and a group hug. The intentions and dedication of merit always included the aspiration that our presence would be of benefit to the children and all of those charged with their care. We were usually there at about two hours. We were very careful about who we told about our activities. We didn't want to engage in argument or debate with well-meaning people who would either oppose our action, since it wasn't a protest, or would knowingly or unknowingly attempt to co-opt it, since this was not what our activities were about. We typically had two beautiful signs with large red hearts in them. One of them says, we care about you, and the other says, te vemos, we see you. I usually used the first meditation period to arrive in body and mind practicing basic mindfulness. The second meditation period I practiced metta. Some people would sit on the grass or curb or cushions, but I always stood facing the center. Standing made me feel especially open. I often felt an expansive sense of space there because of the beautiful area. I found radiating metta to be especially powerful. On my own or together with others, I was able to develop a strong sense of energy radiating from my heart center and penetrating pervasively the stone walls of the center and touching everyone who I imagined was in it. We offered a friendly wave to every person we encountered. The road was typically quiet, but a few cars would go by, either coming or going from the center or heading towards another building. Sometimes someone would go by foot. Most people would return our waves, and that included the police and security personnel. Some people responded enthusiastically. One young woman without a jacket, no money, and no phone joined our circle one day. A teenage girl visiting the center, visiting her brother at the center, joined us. We cried together. That is as if by opening one's heart that one can radiate an energy that others can sense and are attracted to. On our very first visit, on a hot July day, following a large protest there a couple of weeks before, two guards came out to us. We shook hands and my wife and I told them clearly that we were there to offer kindness and compassion to the children and to the staff. They offered us water. Our caring for the staff did not seem to register with them but over time I came to know these men more. I repeated this every time I spoke to them. There is some fragile trust now. A couple of weeks ago when I was there by myself, I took donuts for the staff. <laughs> Once before I had taken bagels and they seemed very confused by this. <laughs> oh, they, they did accept them. We were deliberate in not offering food too much because uh, we suspected that they would think we were trying to manipulate them which we were not. As I approached the front door, I knew it was a good sign when I heard it unlock electronically even before I asked over the phone. This had never happened before. I stepped into the sally port, the secure anteroom where one can't proceed further, and when the voice came over the speaker asking what I wanted, I just said, I brought donuts. The reply was, One moment. <laughs> When the door opened, the, it was the guard supervisor whom I had met some months before who stepped through. I reiterated that I was with the folks who show up every Sunday and that we offer our good wishes for all the people there. I said I couldn't know what his job entails, but I knew it must be hard. Donuts weren't much, but they were something. We ended up chant- uh, chatting, not chanting. <laughs> we ended up chatting for some time. Then suddenly and completely unexpectedly, he asked me, Would you be interested in coming inside to try to help? I told him, yes, I absolutely would. I first asked him what he thought would be helpful. He told me anything that would help him deal with the stress and difficult behavior. I suggested that it might be helpful for the kids to do some movement that could help them be grounded in their bodies and then perhaps more calm and happy. I suggested that maybe mindfulness could help the staff be more patient and happy. He was very interested in these. (laughs) I have since learned that while a few other people have offered support virtually no one has uh, for the children, virtually no one has expressed any interest in helping the staff. So such offers have not been generally well received. Using contact information that the guard gave me, we started the involved process for two of us to be cleared and trained for volunteering there. We should be visiting inside weekly in a few months and there's a lot to prepare. I feel all the emotions that one would imagine, excitement, wonder and responsibility to make the best use of this gracious, of this precious opportunity. The experience has been transformative for me. Everyone I know longs for change, for a better, more just and peaceful world. But I have a deep belief now that it is enough simply to show up with an open heart and not know. maybe see if there's anything from the talk or your experience that might spark like one intention that you have that may come out of the talk on integrating our practice further with daily life. Is there an intention there for you? thank you for your very kind attention and for your deep practice. Very much appreciated. Sharda suggested to give some guidelines for um, speaking tomorrow. And the general guidelines are that we're, we're in silence. And then um, tomorrow morning, uh, after breakfast, and after you've done any work meditation, and outside the buildings, um, talking with each other is fine right up until we come in at nine o'clock, okay? But be really, um, but diligent in keeping the guidelines uh, through to the end of breakfast and outside the buildings, that it serves everyone, thanks.